You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the second and final part of our series on French explorer Jacques Cartier. Today we are going to cover Cartier's second and third voyages. A reminder, you can check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, to see some maps of Cartier's expeditions. I put a link to the Cartier page in the show notes as well. I think seeing a map does help you understand the story, so I recommend taking a look-see. Otherwise, let us dive into part two of Jacques Cartier. Last time, we did some background on Cartier and the early exploration of North America, specifically the eastern coast and up into what is now Canada. We then followed Cartier's initial voyage, which took place in 1534, where he became the first recorded European to reach the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence River. The latter offered the French a potential route from the Atlantic to the Pacific. This was the fabled Northwest Passage. So, based on Cartier's first voyage, he would be bankrolled by the French crown for a second expedition, which would depart just seven months after his return from New France, as these lands were now being called. This expedition would be bigger than the first, consisting of three ships and 110 men. The flagship of the fleet would be a carrack named Grand Air Mine. Newly built, the ship had a cargo capacity of 100 to 120 tons. The second ship was the 60-ton Petite Air Mine, while the final ship was a 40-ton bark named a Million. In addition to the crew, Cartier would have with him two Iroquois captives, Tayueni and Damagaya, the sons of a native chief. The two young men had been brought back to Europe, some say kidnapped, to learn the French language and customs. The idea was that they would be reliable and loyal translators for Cartier. Cartier's fleet would set sail on May 19, 1535. This was a full month later in the year than the departure date of the previous expedition. Cartier would follow the same route across the Atlantic, but unlike his first voyage, bad weather would bedevil his fleet. The previous year, the voyage had taken a mere 20 days. This time it took more than 50, and all three of the ships would get separated in the crossing. Thankfully, there would be no loss of life or ship, despite the storms and the three vessels would regroup on July 7th at a prearranged location, the Isle Birds, which Cartier had visited the previous year. Today it is called Funk Island, and is about 35 miles, or 55 kilometers, off the Newfoundland coast. From the Isle of Birds, the three ships would venture west, reaching the Strait of Belle Isle, which is the passage between Newfoundland and Labrador into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Before heading inland, Cartier would wait in a sheltered bay for two weeks while refitting his battered ships and gathering firewood and food. 
Once in the strait, the ship would hug the northern shore of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. They investigated bays and rivers, made depth readings, all the normal stuff you would do on a voyage of exploration. But they always pressed west, as Cartier was set on exploring the St. Lawrence River. The ships would reach Anticosti Island on August 13th, which is at the mouth of the St. Lawrence. The river is wide at the mouth, roughly 70 miles or 112 kilometers. Cartier was very thorough, sailing along the northern and southern shores of the river to make sure he didn't miss anything important. Now, a reminder. In 1534, the French had encountered the indigenous Iroquois people on the Gaspé Peninsula, which is the southern shore of the St. Lawrence as you enter the river. However, their village, he was told by his translators, was further upriver. This was Cartier's first destination. As a note, the St. Lawrence goes almost directly southwest as you head up the river. And so inland the expedition would go, mapping rivers and islands and bays as they went. Cartier describes in detail the lands, animals, birds, fish, and the natives that he saw, although he did avoid any encounters with the indigenous people. One discovery for the French were some white, porpoise-like fish with no fins. These would have been beluga whales. On September 7th, the ships would encounter fellow tribesmen of Teuani and Domagaya, the expedition translators. It was the first time the two had seen their people in over a year, and there were celebrations amongst the Iroquois. By the way, the two young men had called their home settlement Canita, which means village in the tongue of the Iroquois. Cartier would use the term in his writings, and it came to refer to the area around the St. Lawrence. And thus, the name Canada was born. A few days later, the French would reach the village of Stadacona, which is present-day Quebec City. It is here that the St. Charles River joins the St. Lawrence, making it a key location on the waterway. It is roughly 370 miles, or 600 kilometers, from the mouth of the St. Lawrence. Here, Teuani and Domagaya would be reunited with their father, Chief Donacona. The arrival of the French was met with celebration, and not just because of the return of the village's native sons. Cartier and his men handed out many gifts, and their arrival signaled lucrative trade opportunities for the tribe. At the request of Donacona, Cartier would have one of his ships fire off a cannon volley. The chief had been told about the thunderous artillery pieces by his sons. Everyone was impressed by the display. Now, a few important notes about the expedition. First, Cartier had been told about a bigger, and more important, indigenous community further up the St. Lawrence called Hochelaga, which is modern-day Montreal. At Hochelaga, another great river flowed into the St. Lawrence. Second, and even more enticing to Cartier, were the stories of the Kingdom of Saguenay, a land further west that was known to be rich in gold and jewels. That, Cartier assumed, was China or some other great eastern realm. And the third note I want to talk about is with regards to Taiyuani and Domagaya, the two young men who had been brought back to France the previous year. As I noted before, Cartier believed the two would be loyal servants to him. In his eyes, he had rescued them from a life of savagery. Who wouldn't want to live in big cities and experience the wonders of the Western world? Well, Cartier's assumption that the two would just faithfully do whatever he wanted was unfounded. Once they returned home and reunited with their people and family, they shed the veneer of being civilized, and I used air quotes there, and returned to being what they had been before, Iroquois natives. As a result, Teuani and Domagaya became standoffish with Cartier. They refused to get back on the ships, and when Cartier asked them to lead the French to Hochelaga, they refused. Cartier pressed them, saying they had promised to lead him up the river, but they held their ground, likely pressured by their father, Donacona. The Iroquois chief was very much against the French continuing west. He said the people at Hochelaga were devils and not to be trusted, and he added the region was already covered in snow and ice. The likely reason for this was that Donacona wanted to control any sort of trade with the newcomers. 
He even offered several children to Cartier to live with them and learn French, just like Teyuani and Domagaya had done. Cartier would try and assuage the concerns of Donacona, even giving him several valuable swords. But in the end, neither man was happy and the seeds of distrust were taking root. Cartier insisted on continuing upriver, but neither Teyuani or Domagaya would accompany the French. Cartier would then head up the St. Lawrence without his translators, which irked him greatly. Due to concerns about the depth of the river, the French would only take the smallest of their ships, the 40-ton bark, plus two of the longboats. The rest of the fleet would anchor at the mouth of the St. Charles River, not far from Stadacona. On shore, they began construction of a fort. Cartier headed upriver on September 19th. Along the way, he wrote about the virtues of the land, noting the grapevines, timber, and fish. On September 28th, Cartier's ship would have to halt due to impassable rapids. He would have to continue onward in two longboats with 33 men. They arrived at Hochelega on October 2nd. The journey from Stadacona had covered about 150 miles, or 240 kilometers. The natives of Hochelega were Iroquois, but a separate and rival tribe from those at Stadacona. But news of the French arrival had spread, and Cartier says a thousand natives turned out to welcome them to their community. They brought bread, fish, and other kinds of food. The French handed out beads and trinkets. Mothers pushed up to the newcomers, asking them to touch their babies. It was an impressive display. Cartier offered praise for Hochelega, saying it was far more impressive than Stadacona. Hochelega was enclosed within a wooden palisade. Inside there were more than 50 homes, many with lofts and multiple chambers. Around the village were cultivated fields. Also, the settlement was in an outstanding location, on an island at the confluence of two major rivers. Plus, there was a high rocky hill on the island, which would make the area very defensible. Cartier would dub the hill Mont Real, a.k.a. Mount Royal in English. It is believed that from Mount Real that the city of Montreal's name is derived. Cartier would go into great detail about the natives, who treated the French with awe and respect. At one point, they began to bring their sick and crippled to Cartier, hoping he would heal them. This included a paralyzed chief. Cartier made the sign of the cross and massaged the man's legs as he recited verses from the Bible. We have seen this kind of thing before. If you listen to our podcast on Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, he survived in what is now northern Mexico and the southwest United States by acting as a sort of faith healer. Cabeza de Vaca learned how religious iconography and ceremony, combined with his own knowledge of medicine, allowed him to be seen as a sort of holy man. Cartier was doing this exact same thing, although not quite as dramatically or extensively as Cabeza de Vaca. Anyhow, Hochelaga was built at the mouth of what today is the Ottawa River, which flows from the northwest. Cartier was told that the natives up the river were extremely hostile. As for the St. Lawrence, it went southwest and it led to a large body of water and the great kingdom of Saguenay, where gold and gems were found in abundance. Cartier assumed this meant the Pacific Ocean and China, but what the natives were really talking about were the Great Lakes. Lake Ontario, which is the source of the St. Lawrence River, was only about 165 miles, or 270 kilometers, from Hochelaga. As for Saguenay, no one really knows the truth about that tale, but stories of great, far-off kingdoms are common in virtually all cultures. As for the reports of gold and other treasures, perhaps it was the copper and lead found around Lake Superior, but we just don't know. As a note, Cartier managed to trade for a few small pieces of gold, but nothing more. Still, it reinforced his belief that there was more of the precious metal not too far away. So, Cartier wanted to know more about Saguenay and how to reach it but he was told that there were several sets of rapids on the river that made travel extremely difficult. The rapids, by the way, descended 42 feet over a two-mile stretch just southwest of the village. 
Cartier even climbed Mount Real, the hill overlooking the village that I mentioned earlier. From there, he could see for miles, confirming that the rapids were a very real thing. Anyhow, unable to continue up the St. Lawrence, Cartier would head back towards Stadacona, reaching it on October 11th. At this point, it was decided that it was too late to return to France. The storms of the North Atlantic were just too dangerous this time of year, and thus Cartier's men began to salt down game and fish in preparation for a long winter. Their ships would anchor at the mouth of the St. Charles River, about a mile or two from Stadacona, while the fort Cartier's men had begun was reinforced and expanded. The fort, made of large wooden logs, had cannons, taken from the ships, placed on each side. Now, the relations between the French and the native peoples were cordial at first, but as we have seen, both sides were annoyed with the other, and it wouldn't take long for things to turn sour. The Iroquois chief, Donacona, was still peeved that the French had gone upriver to Hochelaga, and his sons, who now understood the value of the trade goods, made sure that the Iroquois got fair exchanges. This irritated the French, who were forced to pony up more stuff in exchange for fish, game, and furs. Also, we can't forget that these strangers had essentially kidnapped two of their tribe the year before. That had not been forgotten. As for the French, Cartier was convinced that the natives were plotting against him. He set up round-the-clock watches in the fort. And thus, the general distrust between the two parties grew, and interactions pretty much came to a stop. And then, as winter set in and a new year arrived, people began to die. For the French, the culprit was scurvy. They simply were not getting any vitamin C in their diet. 25 of the crew would eventually die from it, and many more became sick. Cartier would write, quote, Out of the 110 that we were, not 10 were well enough to help the others, a pitiful thing to see. End quote. As for the Iroquois, Cartier estimated that 50 of their tribe died that winter. He attributed it to the same disease striking down his own people, but in reality, it was not scurvy. It was probably influenza or some other sickness brought by the Europeans. The indigenous people would prove to be highly susceptible to such diseases, having built up no immunities to them. In the end, the French may have all died had the natives not helped them out. Despite the chilled relations between the two peoples, Domagaya, the chief's son, would show Cartier how to make a brew that fought scurvy. The concoction was made by taking bark shavings and leaves of a tree, we don't know which one, and boiling it with tea. The men were wary of drinking this mixture, thinking the natives were trying to kill them, but the men teetering on death knew that they had little to lose from trying. The result, Cartier said, was a miracle and a godsend. Those who drank the concoction almost immediately started getting better. It was even said to have cured some of the men of syphilis. Quick side note here. Our show's editor, Ross, who is Canadian, informed me that he and his classmates brewed up this scurvy-fighting concoction in history class when they were kids. That's all. Sidetrack done. Now, despite the aid provided by the Iroquois, Cartier would fret for months about treachery on their part. He thought that Donacona was gathering allies from the neighboring lands to launch an attack on their winter quarters. And thus, just as the waters were breaking up on the St. Lawrence, Cartier would strike. On May 3, 1536, the French would lure Donacona to the fort. His sons, Teyueni and Domagaya, would warn their father about the treachery of the French, and they tried to keep him from going inside the fort. But before they could retreat, the French struck. Cartier would seize the three, plus two other men who were with them. His intention was to take them back to France and have them tell the king about the lands of Saguenay. The Iroquois were outraged at the betrayal, but they couldn't do much about it as they had seen the power of the French artillery. Plus, Cartier said their people would return in 10 to 12 moons, bringing with them incredible trade goods. In addition to the men seized at the fort, there were five others, I believe all children, who had been given to the French as gifts. Now, let's make no bones about what had just happened. This was an outright kidnapping by Cartier. 
It was not like the previous voyage, where Cartier sort of couched the taking of the two young men as voluntary. Anyhow, the French would depart from Stadacona on May 6th. Because of the deaths suffered that winter, Cartier would abandon one of his ships, the Petite Air Mine. The remaining two vessels would sail into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and instead of passing into the Atlantic Ocean by going through the Strait of Belle Isle in the north, they used the pass between Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. This gave the French a pretty complete map of the Gulf region. The ships ran along the southern coast of Newfoundland before heading into the Atlantic on June 19, 1536. They would reach Saint-Malo on July 16th. Cartier and his men had been gone for just over a year. So what had Cartier accomplished on his second voyage? Well, he had encountered new people and trading opportunities. He had identified potential locations for a future settlement. He had penetrated hundreds of miles into the interior of North America. But most importantly, at least to the French crown, the Northwest Passage was close at hand, not to mention the rich kingdom of Saguenay. Cartier, by the way, would trot out his native captives, including the Iroquois chief, Donacona, who told the French tales of the rich kingdoms to the west. All Cartier needed to do was return to New France, and he was sure he could come back loaded with gold and jewels. And that, my friends, is where we wrap up the second voyage of Jacques Cartier. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So Jacques Cartier wanted to head back to New France and finish what he had started. He was sure there was a fortune to be made. However, domestic issues in Europe would put a damper on any such endeavor. King Francis's attention, and the royal treasury, was focused on a war with Spain over the control of northern Italy. Exploration and colonization wouldn't be prioritized until 1540. However, the idea was never far from the mind of King Francis or Cartier. As early as 1538, Cartier had proposed an expedition to establish a colony in the New World. We actually have that document, and it lists what and who Cartier would need for such a venture. There were soldiers, blacksmiths, carpenters, doctors, and clergy. 276 men in total, and that didn't include the colonists. The document lists all the stuff that Cartier would need, including six ships, artillery, food, and so forth. And so, in October of 1540, with his war with Spain wrapped up, Francis would appoint Cartier head of a third expedition to the Americas. There were two main goals, find the kingdom of Saguenay and its riches, and to establish a permanent settlement along the St. Lawrence River. This would be Francis' first foray into colonization of the New World. Now, as Cartier began to get his fleet ready, the scope of the French colonization plan would grow. And with that, Cartier would be supplanted as the leader of the expedition. 
The new guy on the block was Jean-Francois de la Roque de Roberval, a friend of the king and a Protestant. Cartier would serve as the expedition's chief navigator. The reason for this was that Roberval was seen as the long-term leader of any settlement established in Canada, while Cartier would handle the sailing part of things. Now, I want to point up front that while Roberval is technically the boss of the expedition, he will have very little to do with Cartier on this upcoming voyage. I will explain why in a moment. But first, an important note about the third voyage. I spoke in the last episode about the source materials for Cartier's voyages. The manuscripts we have for the first two are exceptional, possibly written by Cartier. However, the information we have for this third voyage is limited and missing large chunks of time. This means we're going to be missing a lot of detail, and we'll lurch around a bit in the story. Honestly, the material we have tells our tale, but the flavor and detail is lacking. No matter, we will do the best we can with what we have. Now, as I said, Roberville would not have much to do with Cartier on this upcoming voyage, and here's why. In the spring of 1541, the expedition was, mostly, ready to go, and Cartier wanted to get going to maximize the summer months. However, many of the ships didn't have artillery or gunpowder. Thus, Cartier was given permission to depart early to get a head start on establishing the settlement on the St. Lawrence. Roberville would follow once the rest of the ships were fully ready. So, for this expedition, we have kind of a mishmash of information as to what Cartier had at his disposal. And one of the sources is really fascinating. We actually have a message written by a Spanish spy detailing what was going on with Cartier just before departing France. Anyhow, Cartier would have five ships for his expedition. Two are familiar, the Carrick Air Mine and the Barque Emilion from the previous voyage. Records indicate that Cartier owned two of the ships, while two others were owned by the French Crown. The fifth was owned by a French merchant. None of the vessels was of more than 120 tons. The ships would be packed with everything needed to build and protect a settlement, plus explore further up the St. Lawrence. There was cattle, timber, tools, nails, rope, and so much more. The Spanish spy reported 600 soldiers and 60 masons and carpenters, but that's likely an exaggeration. And there would be colonists to not just build the settlement, but to plant crops, fish, and hunt. The French crown would authorize Cartier to recruit men from the prisons of France, and thus 50 convicts would be part of the expedition. I want to note that Cartier would have no native interpreters for the voyage. Of the ten natives brought back in 1536, only one, a girl, was still alive. Donacona, Teyuani, and Damagaya had died from unknown causes. Cartier said that they were all baptized before their deaths. Cartier and his five ships would depart Saint-Malo on May 23, 1541. They carried supplies for two years. In the book on Cartier's voyage, the narrative skips all the way to arriving at the native village of Stadacona, present-day Quebec City, on August 23, 1541. Cartier would find that there was a new chief amongst the natives, a man named Agana. However, the people of Stadacona were not that thrilled about the return of the French. Think about it. They had taken a bunch of their people, including their chief, and said they'd return in a year. It had been five. Cartier told the people that Donacona had died but the others were still alive and had not wanted to come home and were happy in France. All of it was a lie, except for the fact that Donacona was dead. It's unlikely any of the Iroquois bought the tale. Sensing the coolness of the Iroquois, Cartier decided to head up the St. Lawrence a ways before settling on a place to build a new settlement. The result would be Charlesburg Royal, the first French settlement in the New World. The location of the settlement is present-day Cap Rouge, which is part of the greater Quebec City metropolitan area. Construction of the fortified settlement began as soon as the ships landed, and there would actually be two forts, one at the base of the cape and the other at the top. Meanwhile, the livestock that survived the ocean voyage were turned loose on the land, and vegetable gardens were planted, including cabbage, turnips, and lettuce. 
Now, another thing the men did was to start searching for minerals, and lo and behold, they would strike it rich. Or at least they thought they did. The men would come back with what they thought was gold and diamonds. However, in reality, it was quartz crystals and pyrite, the latter better known as fool's gold. But Cartier thought he had a fortune, so he continued to have people out combing the hills or wherever he got the stuff and bring it back to the fort. By the way, Cartier's collection of supposed diamonds would lead to the saying of, as false as Canadian diamonds. Anyhow, with his people busy with their designated tasks and the construction of the settlement of Charlesburg Royal in full swing, Cartier would turn to his second directive, the reaching of the Kingdom of Saguenay. But first, on September 2nd, he would send two of his ships back to France to make a report and likely gather more supplies. And then on September 7th, Cartier would set out for Hochelaga, modern-day Montreal, in the longboats. The idea was to scout out the area for a route to reach Saguenay in the spring. Along the way, he would leave two young men from his expedition at the native village called Ashlesee. The idea was the two would learn the local language and provide Cartier with trusted translators. At Hochelaga, Cartier would be greeted warmly by the natives, who still had good memories of his visit five years earlier. A brief excursion up the St. Lawrence showed it would be difficult for the French to explore using the river. Thus, Cartier would go up the Ottawa River, as the natives said it was a good way to reach Saguenay, albeit through lands with hostile tribes. Like the St. Lawrence, the Ottawa would prove to be impassable due to rapids. Cartier would thus retreat back to the settlement at Charlesburg Royal. Along the way, he would retrieve the two young men he had left at Ashlesay. Now, there was one thing that did not happen that I need to mention, and that is that Jean-Francois de la Roque de Roberville would not arrive from France. He would have had artillery, men, and supplies, but as winter set in, it became clear that that was not going to happen. What exactly happened in the winter of 1536-37 is not known, but it was not good for Cartier and his men. The distrust between the French and the natives would erupt in all-out warfare. The settlement would essentially be besieged, and 35 men of the expedition would die in the fighting. Of the fighting, we don't have any details. Scurvy, by the way, was mostly avoided, as Cartier knew how to make the concoction of bark and leaf shavings that would inject some vitamin C into the men's diets. That winter would be a miserable one for the French, as they had no way to trade for fish or game. As Cartier looked at his situation, he saw it becoming untenable. The natives were increasingly hostile, and he just didn't have enough men to defend the settlement. And because of that, any thought of trying to explore further up the St. Lawrence or Ottawa rivers was a non-starter. Some may have argued that Robervale would arrive soon with men in arms, but there was no guarantee that would happen. Robervale's ships may have been lost at sea. No matter, Cartier couldn't count on them. So as the waters began to break up on the St. Lawrence, Cartier would make the decision to abandon Charlesburg Royal. He didn't see the settlement surviving the summer. Plus he had dozens of barrels full of gold and diamonds. Returning with those would make the expedition a success. And so, in early June 1542, Jacques Cartier and his three remaining ships would sail east. No one would remain at the settlement. Cartier would sail up the St. Lawrence and out of the Gulf. It is at what we call today St. John's, on the southeast corner of Newfoundland, that Cartier would be greeted by the arrival of Roberville and his three ships. Roberville would listen to Cartier's stories and then order him to turn around and return to the settlement at Charlesburg Royal. Now, Cartier and his men likely were not thrilled about this. They had barely survived the previous winter, and now Roberville wanted them to go back. Cartier would have none of that. He had, he thought, a fortune of gold and diamonds in his hold. He wanted to live to enjoy that wealth, and thus in the cover of night, Cartier and his ships would slip off, sailing for France. Cartier would return home in October. His gold and diamond haul was quickly identified as worthless. 
Now, before we wrap up our story of Cartier, I do want to let you know what happened to our friend, Jean-Francois de la Roque de Roberville. Well, the man would lead his ships back to the abandoned French settlement on the St. Lawrence. Fun sidetrack here. Along the way, Roberville would do something that has entered into the realm of folklore. He had a relative on the ship, a young woman named Marguerite de la Roque. Well, apparently Marguerite would have a relationship with one of the crew. When Roberval found out, he would abandon Marguerite, her lover, and a maidservant on an island off the coast of Quebec called the Isle of Demons. Roberval, by the way, was a fervent Calvinist, and he may have abandoned Marguerite due to his religious beliefs. Others speculate he did it because he was deeply in debt and would gain financially by Marguerite's death. In the end, we just don't know. As for the Isle of Demons, no one knows exactly where it was located. Anyhow, Marguerite would give birth to a child while on the island. However, the child, her lover, and her maidservant would all die. Marguerite would be rescued a few years later by a Basque fishing ship. She would return to France and become a bit of a celebrity and go on to become a school teacher. If Roberville ever faced any repercussions for his actions, it is not known. Anyhow, Marguerite's tale would be captured in various novels, songs, poems, and plays over the years. There's even legends of Marguerite and her lover's ghosts haunting a small island off the coast of Newfoundland. Okay, sidetrack done. So, Robert would work to re-establish the fort at Charlesburg Royal, and he would even strike up better relations with the neighboring natives. However, the winter of 1542-43 would see the deaths of 50 of the French, the result of scurvy. It seems that Cartier had not passed on the potion to keep scurvy at bay, and the results were deadly. In the spring, the weather was good, and Roberville would lead 70 men in eight longboats to Hochelaga. He hoped to go searching for Saguenay and the Northwest Passage. He would explore a bit, but find the rapids too daunting to continue, just like Cartier. On his return to Charlesbourg Royal, he would find that ships had arrived from France with supplies, but they also had new orders, return home. France was, again, at war with Spain. And thus the French would pack up and sail back to Europe. The third voyage of Jacques Cartier had been a failure and at least a hundred men were dead. Cartier had disobeyed orders and left his commander in the lurch, and all the supposed valuables they had brought home were worthless. By the way, Jean-Francois de la Roque de Roberval would continue to serve as a soldier for France before being assassinated in April 1560. His murder was likely the actions of anti-Protestant elements. The city of Roberval in Quebec is named after the man. As for Jacques Cartier, the rest of his life was uneventful. It is not known if he ever faced any sort of punishment for abandoning Roberval, but the fact that he never again led an expedition of any kind for France is probably a reflection on his actions. Anyhow, Cartier would spend the rest of his life in Saint-Malo, managing his estates. He would have been well-off and respectable, but not rich or of the nobility. Cartier would die on September 1, 1557, at the age of 65. He died during an epidemic, perhaps typhus. He is interred at Saint-Malo Cathedral. The location of his grave was actually lost, but was rediscovered in 1949. If you go there, they have marked the spot where Cartier knelt before the local bishop before his second voyage. There's even a stained glass window depicting the moment. So that is the life of French explorer Jacques Cartier. Let's talk legacy. Cartier sort of straddles the line of the great explorers of the Age of Discovery and that second tier of guys. He did some really good things, but not quite epic. Still, there's a ton of stuff that the man supporters can boast about. Cartier is the most important 16th century explorer of the east coast of North America, and especially Canada. It was Cartier's voyages that literally opened up the interior of the continent to the New World. He is the first recorded European to discover the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the St. Lawrence River. In the process, he opened up one of the greatest inland waterways in the world. And it was this area 
that would become the hub of French colonization and power in the New World, although this would not happen until the early 1600s. And while Cartier's third voyage was a bust, his earlier voyages showed a conscientious and practical navigator. He never lost a ship while in the New World, yet discovered and mapped more than 50 harbors and thousands of miles of coastline, all of this in waters that are not easy to navigate. And while Cartier overestimated the mineral wealth of Canada, he quickly understood the value of these new lands offered with regards to timber, furs, and fishing. That's all pretty impressive. Another thing I have to acknowledge is Cartier's first two manuscripts. They are, as noted last time, the best documentation we have of the region from the 16th century. His descriptions of the indigenous people are some of the best and only looks we have from what we call the St. Lawrence Iroquois. Now, I should note that Cartier was far from perfect. His weaseling off into the night with his ships in 1542, leaving Roberval to face the wilds of New France alone, was not exactly the kind of thing you boast about. And his treatment of the indigenous people was mixed. He was often helpful and willing to work with allies, but the kidnapping of people, twice, was less than honorable, and those actions undermined later relations with the natives. In the end, many people see Cartier as the discoverer of modern Canada. That's an exaggeration, but he is a critical person in the exploration of North America. So, quickly, I want to mention how Cartier has been honored for what he has done. There are lots and lots of statues and monuments and paintings of the guy. Most are in Canada, but some are back in France. In Canada, Cartier's name is on schools, roads, parks, and buildings. There are stamps and banknotes with the guy's image. There's even Jacques Cartier Island and Jacques Cartier River. Also, the Jacques Cartier Bridge crosses the St. Lawrence from Montreal Island to the south shore of Quebec. It is the third busiest bridge in Canada, with more than 35 million vehicles crossing it each year. By the way, the busiest bridge in Canada is named after the nation's most famous explorer, Samuel de Champlain, who is known as the father of New France. Four final notes about Cartier and this podcast. 1. The location of Cartier's settlement, Charlesbourg-Royal, was lost to history until it was rediscovered by Canadian archaeologists in 2006. 2. There are all sorts of paintings and drawings of Cartier, but what you see is all speculation as no known depiction of the guy actually exists. 3. While Cartier never found the legendary lands of Saguenay, today there is a city and a river in Quebec that bears the name of that elusive kingdom. And 4. Special thanks to Marc, Marie, and Ross for help on pronunciations for these last couple of episodes. So there you go. That's it for Jacques Cartier. I hope you enjoyed this series. Thanks so much for listening. Please join us next time. Take care. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great independent podcasts, including Your Brain on Facts and Into the Impossible with Brian Keating. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.